Welcome to the Exchange Church Podcast. Feel free to join us live on Facebook every Sunday at 10 a.m. at facebook.com slash exchangechurch. The following message is brought to you by our guest speaker, Bishop Jamie Englehart. Thank you, Pastor Jared. Love you and the family and, of course, the whole team here. It's great to be here. Uh, it's, uh, man, I, I think we're living, we're living it. And when it comes to the kingdom of God, there's such a, in my heart, a wonderful right now redefining and a, and a new building. You know, I think the last 20 years, one of the buzzwords in the church realm has been deconstruction. That people have been deconstructing old thought patterns and religious ideas and things that they were taught and things that they were raised with. But a lot of times in the deconstruction, people aren't constructing anything. And the deconstruction leads to just a throwing, you know, everything, everything out and then never really having anything solid uh, to be with. I, I think we're living in a season, and I've said it now for the last couple of years, I call it a Jeremiah 1 season where God said to Jeremiah, he said, I'm calling you to root up, tear down, cast down and destroy. He said, but then plant and build. And so there's been a lot of rooting up. There's been a lot of tearing down. There's been a lot of casting down and destroying of old ways of thinking and, and even doing church. I mean, over the last year, we had to completely reconfigure how do we do this thing, all right? Because just opening the doors and having, you know, worship and children's and, and, and youth, I mean, 20 years ago, I mean, people would show up. Now everything's changing. I mean, we're having to figure out how to do these things online, how to get people to connect in community. But in the midst of all that, I think there's a, a new planting and building in churches all over America. As I've been traveling, it's all the pastors have been telling me. Uh, I was just talking with a pastor in Michigan, and he said Michigan had just opened up like in, in the last month. And he said they finally went back after all this time to, to having services because they were a church of about five or 600, and they weren't able to do the social distancing thing without doing like five services because they didn't have a very big building. And, uh, and, he, and he said to me, he said, our regular people haven't showed back up. He said, but my church is full of people I've never seen before. And he's like, I don't know what's going on. And I said to him, I said, I think what, what happened with a lot of people is when people have been in toxic, uh, I call it uh, really wrong gospel churches, but they don't know it. You know, if you've been in a toxic situation and you're heavily involved in it and you don't really understand what you're a part of, all of a sudden you're not there for like three months and all of a sudden you wake up to the fact of, man, that really was jacked up. All right? I was being controlled. I was being manipulated. I, I was having to do this, that, and the other thing. And a lot of those people then started to watch things online. And so, so there's a whole new hunger out there, but the hunger is for people that are preaching a a a a fresh, I, I, uh, we have a friend, his name is Jake, and, and Jake's part of our network, and he, we, him and I talked on the phone the other day, and he said to me, I put it on Facebook, for those of you that follow me on Facebook, he said, because I've been over the last six months, I've had all these open doors to preach in Baptist churches, and anybody that knows me, I'm like, the polar opposite of like a normal reformed Calvinistic Baptist people, and he said, he said, God's sending you into traditional places in their mind as a heretic to actually show the traditional places that their tradition is more the heresy and the heresy is actually more the tradition. Because a lot of what I've spent time the last 10 years studying and teaching is what the first 300 years of the church actually taught because around 350 to the 400s after Christ, the gospel got hijacked, our soteriology got hijacked, everything got hijacked because what the early church believed was very different 
I have a friend of mine who's a brilliant theologian, and he said to me, he said, most American Western Protestants believe they're Christians. He said, when the truth is, they're Augustinians. He says, they just believe what Augustine taught because none of it was, a major portion of what we've been taught was not taught before Augustine, and because Augustine was a great prolific author, and the people that were his contemporaries didn't write a lot of stuff down. And then Justinian, which followed, uh, uh, he was a emperor who loved what Augustine taught. He shut down all the other schools of theology that actually taught the polar opposite of Augustine and shut down any voice that was different than Augustinianism. And so the church then, from that time on, began to believe. And the moment he shut down, literally you could track this in history, the moment Justinian shut down the other five schools of theology that were uh, existed in the first four centuries of the church, the Dark Ages started to the day, literally to the day. Because the moment you try to conform everybody to only one way of thinking, uh, I think I, I put it out not too long ago, I said, if you hang with me long enough, I'm going to brainwash you into thinking for yourself. Amen. That, 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 that's a good brainwash. Right? It's not brainwashing you to believe what I have to believe. I mean, I, I, just, got, I just got done doing my fifth e-course and hopefully here by June or July, we'll have them out on my website. Uh, and uh, I, I, did, I did one on hell. And we did a whole study historically where a lot of this stuff comes from. And I told everybody, I said, when it comes to the afterlife, none of the stuff we teach is, is, is certainties. They're all possibilities. Because all through church history, there's been three or four orthodox views on what we believe about the end times, about what we believe about the afterlife, about our soteriology. Those are all things that are not certainties. But you see, we in America, especially, we freak out if there's not a certainty. We, we, we've, we've got to, no, no, you got to tell me it's this, 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 and this. And yet that really wasn't Eastern thought. And in God's shifting, there's like a whole culture shift right now where people are, 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 are saying, you know what, it's okay to not have to be 100% certain about all this. What I'm certain about is that Jesus died for us all. That's a good place for an amen. What I'm certain about is that God so loved the world. I'm, I'm certain that God became flesh and dwelled among us, and I'm certain that he rose from the dead because if I'm not certain about those things, we might as well just shut this thing down and go back and party. All right, and just just forget all this. We don't we don't even need any of this Christianity in the first place. But for me, it's an exciting time to be alive because I'm realizing that people are 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 waking up to what I would call the good news. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit. I encourage you, if you haven't grabbed my book, I've got some copies back there. Uh, also, also, if you're, I always forget to mention this, if you're an audio person where you'd rather listen, you can go to my website. I have an audio book on there actually with commentary. So I read all 70 of the myths and give like five minute commentary. So it's like two books in one and it's actually cheaper than uh, right now on the website than buying the actual book. And so please check that out. I also have packets back there uh, for Compassion International for sponsoring kids. If you've ever done that in the past and, and maybe you had to stop uh, just because of some financial reasons and maybe you'd like to pick up a child again, uh, it's, it'd be a huge thing. Uh, I mean, I, I just, I got a new rep for them and, and we talked for about a half hour on the phone the other day and he said for the first time in like 30 years, uh, they didn't like grow exponentially. They, they were able to at least maintain just because so many people lost their jobs over the last year. And sending $38 a month to help a child in another country when you're just trying to feed your own kid, kind of it kind of gets on the back burner. And so if you've ever thought about doing it, it's a great thing. You help clothe, feed, and educate a child in a third world country. It transforms their life. 
And so you can stop back there at the little uh, booth area and see me if you would. All right, turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Let me get to my assignment for today. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And verse number Luke 4. And I'm going to start in verse number 14. Luke 4. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And news of him went out through all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Let me not come to church anymore and gathering buddy that over the last nine months got real comfortable with not coming to church anymore and gathering. Uh, please read that and make it your custom again. I thought I'd have got a couple amens right there. Listen, make it your custom again often concerns. There's a reason for corporate gathering, and I, and I understand, I mean, all, all the stuff and concerns still with COVID and everything, but just don't, don't, don't make up your mind. I've gotten so used to this, I'm going to stay at home. There's still something about corporate worship that is totally different than listening to a CD. It just is, and I encourage you to please uh, come out and, and be a part. I think it's extremely important. And as he, and then he, and as he, uh, as with us on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And we had opened the book. He found the place where it was written. Now, this struck me this morning, just reading this again. I mean, I want you to think about this. He had no, he had no chapters and verses. <laughs> so, I mean, imagine he's handed this scroll, and he's got to find Isaiah 60. I mean, I wonder how long that took. It doesn't say. I can almost just sit in there imagining, going, man, he had to just keep scrolling. And he didn't say, okay, let's get over here to Isaiah 60 or Isaiah 61. And like we do, we can just we can flip through our page or we can push a button and get to it. I mean, he, he probably took a minute. And as it was written, he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. I say to you, No prophet is accepted in his own country, but I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout the land, but none of them was Elijah sent to except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up to thrust him out of the city. They led him to the throw of the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff, and passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Now, see, I, I, I don't know about you, but when, whenever I read the passages about how ticked off Jesus made the religious people, it always causes my mind to then say, why? I mean, what did he actually say that ticked him off so bad that they wanted to throw him off a cliff? I mean, if any, has anybody ever ticked you off so bad you want to throw him off a cliff? 
I mean, just think that through a minute. I mean, I don't know if I've ever been that angry in my life. I mean, I may have wanted to punch somebody. I mean, I may have wanted to, you know, I mean, some, but I mean, throw them off a cliff. That's pretty intense. All right. That, that's where like you, you've lost your mind when you want to throw somebody off a cliff. But when you read the passage, you're like, well, what's the big deal? I mean, why would they be so angry? Well, let me, let me share with you a few of the reasons why. Well, first of all, uh, Jesus comes out of the wilderness. He had already been in the wilderness. John baptizes him. All the people out there hear a voice come from heaven saying, this is my son and who I'm well pleased. And everybody gets excited. And for 40 days, they run back into the cities and they're telling everybody, we heard a voice from heaven when this Jesus from Nazareth, when he was baptized and it said, he's the Messiah, he's the son of God. And so already for 40 days, Jesus had all kinds of press. I mean, they didn't have Facebook, they didn't have Instagram, they didn't have any of that. But I mean, all of a sudden, I mean, word was going crazy. And so He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He comes out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. He goes back to his hometown, and on his first Saturday, his first Sabbath day, he gets up, and they're like, okay, here here it comes. And he gets up, and he opens up the scroll of Isaiah, and he opens it up, and he reads. And he declares, the Spirit of the Lord's emancipation proclamation. He gets up, and he declares, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the good news. Now, I, I, I want to give you just a, a few little things here because I think it's, I think it's so important to, to understand. Uh, this, this good news, uh, get it from the word evangelium in the Greek language. And, and I love this, and, and this is actually from Pope, Pope Benedict. I think it's one of the best definitions of the gospel I've ever heard. It said, the gospel was a word used by emperors to make decrees. The messages issued by the emperor were called in Latin evangelium. Regardless of whether or not their content was particularly cheerful or pleasant, the idea was that what comes from the emperor is a saving message, that it is not just a piece of news, but a changing of the world for the better. Love that. When the evangelists adopt this word, and it whereby, thereby becomes the generic name for all their writings, as in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, What they mean to tell us is this, that what the emperors who pretend to be gods illegitimately claim really occurs here, a message endowed with plenary authority, a message that is not just talk but reality. The gospel is not just informative speech but performative speech, not just the imparting of information but action, efficacious power that enters into the world to save and transform. Mark speaks of the gospel of God and the point being that it is not the emperors who can save the world, but God. What an amazing picture of what the gospel is. The gospel is not just good news, but it's good news from a ruler that is there to change the world around it. So Jesus stands up and, and he says, this passage that you've been reading for over oh, 1,800 years now, this is now being fulfilled in your hearing, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He's anointed me to declare this good news. And what is the good news? See, the good news somehow got hijacked 
And again, it started mainly with a man by the name of Tertullian, and then it got shifted to a man by the name of Augustine, and then and then Anselm, and then you know, good old Johnny C. Johnny Calvin got a hold of it and took it to a whole other level. And the gospel turned into your dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking sinner who God can't stand. He wants to fry in all hell because all you are is snow-covered dung. That's what Martin Luther said. I mean, didn't you know that you're just a piece of poo? I mean, isn't that just beautiful to know? Even though you're made in the image and likeness of God, and you're the offspring of God, and you're actually one of his children that he's absolutely, absolutely crazy in love with. No, no, you're just snow-covered dung. You are nothing but a piece of crap. And somehow the gospel turned into a good news that the gospel, this good news edict, is a gospel to the poor. Now listen, poor poor doesn't just mean people that don't have any money. It literally, it, it, it first starts off, it's to heal the brokenhearted. It's the crushed, the shattered, the bruised mind and will, those who have been through any kind of trauma. So the good news is to not give them a message that's more traumatic. I mean, think about how much of what we call the gospel was presented to us. I don't know if you've ever seen that little meme on Facebook, and you know, I mentioned every once in a while, and it's a man, and Jesus is knocking at a door, and he says to the man on the other side of the door, would you let me in? And the man says, why? He said, so I can save you. And the man says, from what? He says, from what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in. I mean, think about how traumatic. I mean, someone has already been living hell on earth. They've they've been through all kinds of abuse and all kinds of pain, but yet the gospel all of a sudden has to convince them how horrible and miserable and depraved and how worse they even are, rather than giving them a good news edict that if you've been brokenhearted, if your mind has been shattered, if your emotions have have been bruised and your mind is messed up and your will, there's good news to you. This isn't who you are because that's who you became because of an ancient ancestor who messed up one time, and so God's been ticked off for thousands of years. Hmm. It also says to proclaim liberty, liberty to the captives. This word liberty means freedom, deliverance, pardon, release from debt, complete forgiveness to the captives, which are those who were prisoners of war or those conquered. To preach the good news to the poor, Greek, it means to crouch in fear, destitute, beggars are crouched over. So the good news to the poor isn't just that you're, you don't have any money. It's like to anybody who's crouched over. Why? Because the weight of the world has been on them. And he said, this good news is to let you know that no matter how destitute, no matter how beggarly, no matter how much bent over you are, that you can be straightened up just like the woman that was bent over for 18 years and Jesus comes and she gets a hold of the hem of his garment and and all of a sudden she's straightened up and her life is transformed. Why? Because it's good news to those who are in pain, those who are sick, those who are bound, those who are beggarly, those who are crouched over, those whose minds have been abused and their hearts have been broken. Listen, when it says the brokenhearted, it's literally not talking about this, this thing pumping right here. Do you know that all through the Old Testament, nearly every time you hear, see the word heart, it's nephesh, which is soul. When David said, created me a clean heart, O God, God didn't literally have to give him a brand new heart. He was talking about a new mind, a soul, new will, new emotions. He had had to get him to a place of saying, listen, this needs to be changed. This needs to be transformed 
in your life. He's saying, God created me a, a clean mind, oh God, because the problem is between my ears. That's why Colossians 1 tells us that we were enemies of God in our, in our minds. That's why Jesus and John came preaching, repent, metanoi, change your mind. The problem actually wasn't your literal heart. The problem was between your ears, where the veil was that, that brought a separation. It also says recovery of sight to the blind. It means blind physically or mentally. It's also translated to be darkened by smoke. In other words, Jesus came to remove all the smoke screens. He came to remove all the, the religious hypocrisy and ideas, the smoke screens that we believed about ourselves, smoke screens we believed about him. There's been a lot of, a lot of smoke screens preached from our pulpits, and it's not clearly revealed the God that looks like Jesus. Instead, it's just nothing but blowing smoke. What do we say about someone who's really not saying much? They're just blowing. They're just blowing smoke. Jesus, Jesus one time, he, there's a man who was blind, and Jesus prayed for the man, and he said, what do you see? The men said, I, I see men walking as trees. And then, then Jesus prayed for him again, and then his eyes opened up. And I, I've heard sermons preached on that called a second touch, that Jesus didn't heal him the first time, and you just got to keep going back to God and get a second touch. But actually, I believe Jesus gave him insight before he gave him natural sight because the sight he gave him was who was walking around Jesus, Pharisees and Sadducees. And he said, I see men walking as trees. Trees don't walk. Trees are rooted and grounded in something. And Jesus said that we're to be rooted and grounded now in love. In other words, these religious people, they weren't rooted and grounded in love. They were rooted and grounded in law. And it was all about throwing stones at people and attacking others. He gave him spiritual sight. Then he prays for him and his natural eyes open up. I want I wonder what would be the best to have, real spiritual insight or just natural sight. He opens the, the blinded eyes and to proclaim, to release the oppressed, it means those shattered and broken pieces, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor or the year of Jubilee, the acceptable year of the Lord, which is a true emancipation proclamation. Because at the year of Jubilee, those that were in prison were set free. There really was no such thing as a life sentence unless they killed you. If you, were, if you had lost land and property, it was restored. Every 50 years was a slate that was wiped clean, literally a rebooting or a starting over. That is how... Israel chose to function. That was one of the things that the Lord is now Moses to do. And so Jesus gets up and he declares, the acceptable year of the Lord is now here, and it's fulfilled. In other words, there's been one long year of jubilee, and that jubilee has been declared. And then Jesus sits down and says, it's been fulfilled. And I used to teach that they got angry because Jesus left out the favorite part. I believe that adds to it because the end of that passage in Isaiah actually says, and to declare the days of the vengeance of our God. So Jesus was like, listen, if, if you want to know what the gospel includes, it has nothing to do with vengeance and punishment. So the good news is not turn or burn. 
The good news is open up blinded eyes. The good news is if you're crouched over and poor and weighed down, you get set free. If you've been in debt, if you've been in slavery, if you've been in bondage, you get to be delivered. Not only that, but your loved ones and your family. It's a rebooting of the planet. It's a rebooting of your life. The Jews called it a tikkun olam. They believed that when the Messiah would come, that he would come to renovate the earth, not destroy it, but renovate it and transform it. And so here, they really weren't as angry about him leaving off the days of vengeance, even though that's what they liked. What caused them to get so angry? As he goes on to say, a prophet is without honor in his hometown. And he said, in Israel, there were all kinds of widows. But the prophet Elijah wasn't sent to any of the widows of Israel. He was sent to a Gentile widow. A lady from Zarephath over in Sidon. In other words, he didn't bring deliverance to a Jew. He brought deliverance to a Gentile. Then he says there was all kinds of of lepers in the land. But he didn't bring deliverance to the lepers in Israel. He delivered Naaman, a Syrian general, from his leprosy. They got so mad, they tried to then pick him up and throw him off a cliff. Why? Because what he was saying is this. This good news declared in Isaiah isn't just for the Jews. It's for all of yous. In their mind, this thing was only about the Jews. That's why the days of vengeance is God was going to destroy Rome. He was going to cause all of the other nations of the world to come bow in Israel at the feet of the Messiah, and the Jews were going to rule the earth because we're God's chosen people. And Jesus shows up. He leaves off the idea of vengeance. He leaves off the idea of punishment. He declares an incredible good news, but the good news is not just for the Jews. The good news is for all of yous. That angered them so much because they're like, that's not what our Messiah is going to do. Our Messiah is just for everybody. He came for those who prayed a magic prayer. Jesus only came for those who were the promised ones. They were, John Calvin called it, the elect, those who were predestined and elected to be saved. Problem is, he gets those passages from mainly Romans and Paul all through Romans from chapter 2 all the way to chapter 11. He's talking about the Jews that would need salvation. Salvation from what? Not from their sins, saving from the destruction of the Jewish temple when 1.2 million of them were slaughtered by the Romans 40 years later, exactly when Jesus said they would come in Matthew 23, Matthew 24. He was warning them of something that they needed to not perish from, and the elect were those Jews who would not be destroyed. 600,000 Christians that were in Jerusalem, not one of them died during the three-and-a-half-year siege because they believed the words of Jesus that when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, head for the hills. If you're on your rooftop, don't jump, don't go back down the house, jump off the roof and head for the hills. Not one Christian died, but 1.2 million Jews were fired by the Romans. That is a historian to Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, mistranslated as hell, and set on fire by the Romans. That is a historical fact of something that already happened and already took place. And that was the elect. The elect were the elect Jews that would be saved, not the ele- not every Christian. 
See, it, it, that's why if your eschatology is off and everything else is off, it just it affects literally affects everything. And so Jesus gets up and he declares this incredible proclamation. He's like, I came to declare good news. The good news is for everyone hurting, everyone sick, everyone wounded, everyone in bondage, everyone that needs deliverance. I came for all. See, that's why, that's why 1 John 2 says that he was a propitiation for our sins, but not our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. According to Romans chapter 5, that because of one man's unrighteous deed, Adam's, all were made unrighteous, but now because of one man's righteous deed, all are made righteous. Now, depending on your translations, some put in there many, but the Greek is all. It's all were made righteous, righteous, because you only begin to pray to prayer. You were made righteous 2,000 years ago. It doesn't mean you act righteous, because you only begin to act righteous when you actually begin to believe you're righteous. That's why Paul said, here's good news. Uh, Awake to righteousness and then stop sinning. He didn't say stop sinning and awake to righteousness. I mean, you know, the more you awaken to the fact that you're already righteous, you're going to stop sinning. But, but you know what the gospel became over the last 1,500 or more years, 1,800 years? The gospel turned into stop sinning. And then maybe, just maybe, you might awaken to the idea that you might be righteous, but probably not because you're dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking worm that God can't stand and he don't even like you. And as John Piper says, all Jesus is is our asbestos suit that protects us against the white, hot, fiery wrath of God. Really? So as long as I'm behind Jesus, Daddy's smiling. The moment I step out of Jesus, I mean, how is that good news? I mean, because I think we interpret our life is hid with God in Christ to our life is hid from God in Christ. So now let me. Let me get to the crux to what I, I want to share today. The Emancipation Proclamation, I believe, is a, an incredible picture of what took place. We're, we're beginning Holy Week right now. This is Palm Sunday. What took place in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and his ascension? The thing that we can relate with the most, I think, in our culture is when President Lincoln makes a declaration in 1862, signed into law in 1863, that slavery and putting other humans in any form of bondage was now illegal. It was something that was no longer allowed. When he declared that emancipation proclamation, he declared it from Washington So let's just look at the kingdom of God here and God making a declaration as the ruler of the universe that now the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to set people free. And just like as in the 1800s, there were all kinds of people that were in slavery, specifically those that were slaves that were brought over from Africa and, and, and we know now how horrible of an idea that is and how miserable it is. And, and in modern culture, we think that's the craziest thing ever. Why would any where people sat in church every Sunday and the preachers had slaves? Preachers preaching supposedly good news and then go home, and it was slaves that were serving them. And yet they would 
find a Bible passage for it to say it's okay because the truth is you can find a Bible passage for anything you want to justify. I mean, if I just decided one day, you know, listen, I love my wife, but I think I'd like a couple more. I can find a whole bunch of Bible verses for it. Matter of fact, I remember when the whole gay marriage debate came out four or five years ago, people were like, oh, this is just horrible. I mean, the Bible is clear. Marriage is between one man and one woman. I remember telling people, hey, you might want to use something other than the Bible. <laughs> if, if you're going to use the Bible as your platform for marriage between one man and one woman, the Bible talks a whole lot more about polygamy. And I mean, I mean, if my brother dies before he impregnates his wife, I'm supposed to then go impregnate her. I mean, there's some crazy stuff in there. Listen, I love my sister-in-law, but ain't happening. I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you. I'm like, no, you need to marry somebody else, okay? And my wife would be like, oh, yeah, you know that? I don't think so. You've lost your mind. You're going to what? But, yeah, you know, that was, listen, you can find Bible verses for all kinds of stuff. But we realize today, it's, it's like for some reason, someone back a month or so about women in ministry, and, and, and I reformed Calvinistic forum about women in ministry. And, and, and I don't even know why I even looked at it, but I decided, to, you know, they're like, oh, you know, no, 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 women can't be preachers. The Bible is clear. And I'm like, well, you know, that passage in Timothy where women, you know, out not to preach and all that. I said, the context there is he's talking about Adam and Eve, and then he goes on to talk about childbearing. So he's not talking about females because Paul wouldn't have told just females they couldn't be in childbearing and not teach. He'd have been talking about wives. And the word there for woman, gune in the Greek, is also translated as wife more than 60% of the time the word is actually used. And I'm like, so Paul here is talking about wives that aren't submitted to their husbands, got no business teaching in the church, not females, not teaching in the church. And in the midst of that, all these guys jumped on, oh, no, brother, the Bible, the Bible is clear. Women aren't to do anything. They're not to teach, they're to keep silence. And I'm like, well, all right, I guess, I guess, you know, if you believe that a first century misogynistic culture where women had no say-so, no vote, they couldn't own property, they couldn't, they couldn't even have their own money unless they went and saved it and stuck it away where nobody knew about it. Their only purpose was for procreation or for slavery. If you think that is still applicable, then you should still be okay with slavery because the New Testament also tells Onesimus to submit to his master. So you're okay still then with slavery, but you think that that something written in the first century in a misogynistic culture is still okay today? We've grown. We realize there's women vice presidents, women senators, women governors, women CEOs. God did not take woman out of our back, out of our side. Called to walk with us, not by behind every good man is a good woman. No, beside every good man is a good woman. Jesus came to redeem all that stuff. He came. He's like, listen, man, this misogynistic stuff's got to stop. That's why the first apostle of the resurrection was a woman. The first one he sent wasn't a dude. It was a woman. But it didn't matter. These folks jumped on, and oh, my gosh, I finally just, like, deleted my state because I was like, it was getting out of hand. These folks, oh, well, the Bible. I was like, oh, for heaven's sakes. They say this Emancipation Proclamation legally, objectively set all slaves free. But when you actually go back in history and study it, there were four there were four types of slaves and how they responded to the message. First of all, there, was a, there were those that heard it with gladness, responded to it, and many of them began to migrate north, and they got free of their masters. That was 
a response, but the overwhelming majority actually never heard it. They never heard the good news that slavery was now illegal, and now you don't have to be a slave anymore. Even though it was legally true, but many effectively true for all slaves, that they were no longer slaves, but many stayed slaves because they never heard the good news that they were no longer slaves. Listen, that this is what the gospel is supposed to be. The gospel is not informing people of how miserable it is to be a slave anymore. The good news is you were delivered from slavery 2,000 years ago. Matter of fact, it wasn't just the new covenant. If you really want to get nitpicky with it, there is a covenant called, Paul called it the eternal covenant, and the eternal covenant goes back to before you were even born. Because according to Paul telling Timothy, he said you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. His heart was always for his humanity to be with him and walk with him. That was the Father's eternal heart and covenant, but you never heard the good news. And you never responded to it. Something can be true of you, and you never walk in the truth of it. Because subjectively, you never heard it, you never believed it, and you never applied it. Secondly, or thirdly, they found out that there were people They never heard the good news because the masters and the systems kept them from hearing it. We're told by the Apostle Paul that the God of this age has blinded the minds of men, which, of course, in that passage, it was talking about the gods or the rulers. Actually, uh, better in the Greek is the rulers of the age. The rulers of the age were the rulers of the age of law, it was actually, Paul was talking there about the Judaizers and the law keepers. He wasn't, he wasn't talking about the devil is trying to keep people from hearing. I mean, you know, even though there might be, you know, some demonic stuff that's trying to keep people from hearing the gospel and all that, I'm not saying that. But, but literally what Paul was saying is it's the religious system that's actually keeping people from hearing the good news. I want to just submit to you that there are all kinds of people that have sat in church for 20, 30, 40 years, and actually never heard the gospel. Most of what they heard was a more form of it, or they might have heard little bits and pieces of it. Why? Because the rulers of the age of law, people that are still preaching law in mixture, listen, this good news that we preach is irresistible. It's something that's such good news that when you actually hear it, you're like, this is too good to be true, man. Are you serious? This is what this is about? That's how much he loves us? He don't just love me. He also also loves my enemy. He loves my neighbor that gets on my nerves. He loves my cousin who I don't like. He loves and I progenitors me every Monday at work and triggers me. And I project on them my problem and blame them. <laughs> uh, you ought to be asking why you're getting so angry. Well, they just do this to me. No, no. They don't do anything to you. They trigger something inside of you because not everybody responds that way. Why do you respond that way? You're responding that way because there's something going on inside of you. Stop blaming them. If you want to know so arrogant, it's no, you're arrogant. I mean, if you're judging everyone else as arrogant, you, because five other people sat and listened to the same thing, it didn't make them mad. Why, why are you so mad? Well, she, so we always project on others our issues. I, I know, I know, I know. We, we, we had a lady that had attended our church one time, everybody. 
you talked to her, everybody was molested. I mean, everybody. And she came up to me one time. She said, I think you were molested. God, show me you were molested. I'm like, listen, you were molested. You're telling me everybody has been molested. It's probably because you've not dealt with a molestation that took place in your life. Not everybody's been molested. And she's like, well, well, I, I had counseling before, and that did come out. I'm like, you're projecting on everybody else your issue. Jesus came to not find all of that mess. He came to heal it. Well, you see, it's the rulers of the age that are keeping people from hearing the good news, and the religious system is almost set up to keep people from hearing really good news. Because we got to rule with fear. That's why, that's why men like Tertullian and Augustine and Justinian and many of the emperors, they said we have to keep the idea of eternal punishment in the gospel to control the masses. It was all based on fear. If I can keep you afraid, I can control you. If I can tell you, if you don't show up to every service and you don't pay your tithes, your car's going to break down. Hmm? You're going to get cancer if you don't do this, 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 and this. And then we wonder why we got all kinds of people don't want anything to do with church whatsoever, don't want anything to do with Christians, because most of the time what we gave them was not the actual proclamation of the gospel. We gave them this, this perverted, morphed hybrid that wasn't the good news of Jesus Christ. But they'd been slaves for so long that they just couldn't believe it. It was such good news that they said, man, I, I just can't believe that that's true because my circumstances are still telling me I'm a slave. How can I walk in freedom even though I've been told, listen, all of humanity, all of humanity 2,000 years ago was reconciled. All of humanity. You, you turn to the Apostle Paul telling his young protege, Timmy, Timothy, he said, Timothy, he said, Jesus is the Savior of all men, but especially those who believe. And then he said, preach and teach these things. I've never heard one sermon on that passage in my entire life. And Paul told his spiritual son, preach this, that Jesus is the Savior of all men, but especially those who believe. Why? Because the gospel declares this isn't just a Jewish thing. This is for all of humanity. That is an objective truth that is true of all. So why don't people walk in it? Because faith is the evidence of things not seen. The evidence of something has to do with that which is seen. Objectively, this is true of all of humanity. You were forgiven 2,000 years ago. Matter of fact, we really want to get picky about it. When Jesus was crucified, we were crucified. When he died, we died. When he was buried, we were buried. When he was quickened, we were quickened. When he was raised, we were raised. When he was seated, we were seated. That means everybody got put in heaven 2,000 years ago objectively in Christ. So how come people aren't enjoying the abundant life? It's because they haven't heard it and they haven't believed it because faith is the evidence of something not seen. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means you've not subjectively seen it, 
or you've not believed it. And because you've not believed it, you don't enjoy the benefits of it. That's why the gospel is a proclamation of what's already true of you that you just don't believe. It's not trying to get you to be something. It's trying to get you to understand what you already be. That this is who God already made you in Christ. But until you believe it, then you walk your whole life without enjoying fellowship, reconciliation, forgiveness. Even though you were forgiven 2,000 years ago, according to Paul in, in Colossians 2, that when you were dead in your sin, he quickened you, made you alive, and completely forgave you. So when did he, when did he forgive you? When you were still in sin. But forgiveness was for all of humanity. He forgave all of humanity. This was done. That is an objective truth. Objective truth is God towards man, how God views humanity. But us towards him is the subjective. And subjective is he reconciled me, but then Paul said, now be reconciled. In other words, you don't enjoy reconciliation until you respond back. That's why, is believing still important? Absolutely, it's still important. Why? Because all men have already been, the price is already paid. It's all finished objectively, but subjectively, if you don't apply it to your life, you never get to enjoy the benefits of everything that Jesus did for you. You never awake to righteousness. You never walk in peace and joy, and you never begin to walk out what this emancipation proclamation declared. So you're still clouded in smoke. You're still bent over. You're still poor. You're still bound. You're still dealing with all kinds of issues because the more you begin to find out what he did and what he did for you and as you, the freer that you begin to walk in. It's when we walk that truth out because it's the, it's the evidence. That's why faith without works is dead you've believed it is evidence. It shows that you've believed it subjectively and you've experienced it. See, that's why, listen, guys, let me wind this down. It's not the truth that makes us free. It's the knowledge of the truth. The word knowledge, epigonosko, is a Greek word that means it's experiential truth. It's an encounter. Truth Paul said men would ever be learning but never come into the knowledge of the truth. That means you can get truth, truth, truth. You can go from conference to conference, listen to a thousand podcasts. You know, you can go to you can go to 10 different Bible schools and get truth put in you, but until you begin to actually walk that truth out and you experience the truth, it's the knowledge of the truth that sets us free. It's not just getting information. It's that I'm, I'm, I'm living this thing. I've experienced it. It's become real in my heart. It's become real in my life. Just like President Lincoln declared all slaves free, Jesus at the cross declared to Telestai, it is finished, all slaves. Those who had been enslaved to sin and death are now set free, and it's our job now to declare that good news to the poor, to the brokenhearted, to the wounded, to the religious. Because I tell you, the people that get the most mad are not the poor, not the brokenhearted. <laughs> the folks that will fight you is religious folk. Listen, Jesus didn't, was not crucified because of who he excluded. Jesus was crucified because of who he included. And that's why they wanted to throw him off a cliff. Because he was saying, 
what God did in Elijah and Elisha's life was for those Gentiles, not for the Jed when he said, this gospel is now including the people, the marginalized that you kicked to the curb. It's now including the people that you don't like, the people you view as your enemies. That's just incredible, incredible good news. Now let me, let me read this. I think it's so good. The Emancipation Proclamation was signed by President Abraham Lincoln on January 1st, 1863, setting all slaves in the United States free. That was an objective reality. However, that didn't mean they all experientially benefited from it. Shelby Foote, in his three-volume work on the Civil War, recorded the response of one slave that revealed the mindset of many. This slave said, I don't know nothing about Abraham Lincoln, except he set us free, and I don't know nothing about that neither. That man's experience mirrors that in many people today. Jesus Christ has dealt with the sin of mankind. Jesus Christ has set us free from sin's tyranny over us. That's an objective fact. But that doesn't mean everybody is living out that reality. One theologian was asked, when were you saved? He said, well, I suppose it was 2,000 years ago. He answered, what did he mean? He meant that the objective reality of salvation took place at the cross. Trusting Christ now doesn't bring something into existence. Instead, trusting him now is simply a response predicated on the fact that we at last see what he has already accomplished for us, and we now believe it. We begin to live in the reality that was brought into existence at the cross. We begin to enjoy today the subjective experience of an objective reality that was settled long ago. Remember that faith doesn't make anything happen. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Those things are there already, they just not seen. Through faith, the invisible reality that already exists becomes our visible experience. Through faith, the objective becomes subjective. There's nothing left for God to do for mankind. He's already done it all. To proclaim the gospel is to tell people that it really is finished. To experience salvation firsthand is to believe it and live from the reality of his work on our behalf. That is amazing good news. And the beginning of this, this holy week, going into on Easter Sunday, and I know Easter, a lot of folks that maybe haven't been to church for a while might just venture out on Easter Sunday at least. Or at least online viewership is going to grow. But in the midst of that, realize our message to the world Paul said we've been given history is not pointing the finger. We've been given a word and our ministry. Our ministry is not pointing the finger and shaming people. Our ministry is one of reconciliation. What would happen if the whole body of Christ really began to comprehend what I just shared with you? Rather than pointing our finger at our neighbors, we'd actually begin to embrace them. Begin to let them know, you're my brother, you're my sister. You just don't know it. You've already been set free. You've already been forgiven. You want to really understand what God did? God loves you. He's reconciled you. He already paid the price for you to no longer be a slave to anything in your life. All you have to do is simply believe it, and as you appropriate it by faith, your life will be transformed. So is there still something we respond to? Yes, that's why we're not saved by grace alone. And we're not saved by faith alone. We're saved by grace through faith. Greatly. Faith is everything we respond to subjectively. It, it, it's a beautiful side of two coins. It's not one or the other. 
It's not either or, it's both and. I need to know what he has done, but then my response produces evidence from the unseen into the seen. It's already real. It's already true. That is why the writer of Hebrews, and if someone could play something for me, the writer of Hebrews said this, that God gave these incredible promises to the children of Israel in the wilderness, but most of them, except for a few, did not enter the promised land because they never mixed the promises with faith. Because they didn't believe it, they didn't receive it. I tell you the thing that saddens me more than anything else is how many people, because we preachers have got it for years and said, I shared the gospel with that group and they rejected it. Probably not. I don't believe people reject that good of news quite easily. I believe what they rejected is a lot of the religion we've given them. I believe people have rejected this idea of, of, of an angry father, of an angry God that's more like, Zeus than he is the father of Jesus. I think, I think people have rejected forms of the gospel that's not been the pure and true good news. Because for someone to find out, God loves me unconditionally. I'm his child. I just didn't know I was his child. His love for me is not predicated on my works, but it's predicated on his work. I love him because he first loved me. That, that all, of, all of that mindset and all of that shifting, imagine the people actually heard the good news. And you know what? We now, as the body of Christ that have heard it, now that's what we share. How do I apply this message? I share good news. I, I just let people know God's good with you. He's not mad at you. You're the one that's not good with yourself. You're probably more mad at you than you are anybody else. And he came to save us from what? Not just save us from our sins, but also to save us sometimes from our wrong ideas of our Ephesians too. We're his poems. He, he wrote a beautiful sonnet. He put your name in it. He said, man, you, you are a poem to me. That's, that's how beautiful I see you. That's, that's a beautiful picture. That's news that people are starving for. I know all the flying I do around the world. When, when I share that with people, I've had people look at me in astonishment and say, really? That's not what other Christians told us. They told us that God is angry with us until we repent of our sins and turn from our wicked ways and, and we walk away. We got to stop doing this and stop doing that. Then he'll love us. I'm like, that's, that's not the gospel. That's, that's the gospel mixed with law. I'd say it's a perversion and a mixture. It's another gospel. But it's not the good news. The good news is this gospel came to you to clear up all the smoke screens, to cause all those bent over, to be able to stand straight. You don't have to be bound in any area of your life. That's why the more you understand the gospel and the more you apply the gospel, the good news is something I believe we preach daily to ourselves. I, I will, before I get out of bed, I, I, almost every morning, I will lay in bed and declare the gospel over me, that I am free, that I'm healed, that I'm delivered, that I'm whole, that I'm complete, that I'm forgiven today. I'm, I'm, 
the days of me asking for forgiveness over and over again, that, that's been a long time ago. I'm, I'm, I'm declaring that I'm already forgiven because of his finished work. It's amazing how easy it is to then forgive others once you know you're already forgiven and when people treat you a certain way, you're able to just get over it and move on because you're able to forgive because you've been, been forgiven. This good news is better than you thought. And I, I think it's time the body of Christ began to declare the true Emancipation Proclamation. And let the world know. He didn't just die for Christians. He didn't just die for people that walked down an aisle and prayed a prayer. He died for all. Because he loved would perish. But all would come to a change of mind. That, that's his longing and desire. But the truth is there's people that day in and day out perish with all kinds of smoke screens and bent over and bound because they don't believe or they've never actually been told. I just made up my mind I'm going to spend the rest of my life telling people the good news because I, I had a major portion of my life hearing nothing but bad news. And it's amazing how this was actually the message of the early church, but I've been called a heretic for teaching it even though there's all these verses that you can show that this was already done for all of mankind. It's good news. Bow your heads a moment, would you? Father, I thank you today. I thank you for everything that you did and accomplished in Christ for us and as us. Lord, I said you would remove from are thinking this idea that you are some bloodthirsty entity that we should be terrified of. That you really are a, a father who longs for fellowship with his children. Remove all the wrong religious ideas that the rulers of the age of law shoved in our brains, even going to church that cause us to live out of shame and out of blame rather than health and wholeness and rather than heal us. It made us more broken many times. Just as Jesus said to the Pharisees that you will, you will cross land and sea to make a convert and make him twice a son of the, of the devil. Remove all those wrong ideas and help us see truly the good news that gets applied. Lord, I pray that everyone that heard this today and those that will watch this, those that are watching and those that will watch it in the future, Father, I just declare heaven's emancipation proclamation over every one that will listen to this. And we just declare that you are loved. You are, you are already been declared free from heaven's perspective. And now we implore you to simply believe it and respond to it. We implore you to simply say thank you for the gift of salvation. It's not anything I have to beg for. It's something I simply receive by faith. And 
God's given every one of us a measure of faith to even believe it. So I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for transforming our lives as you and only you can. The beginning of this holy week, as we step into a week of thanking you for all that you've done for us and as us, and as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday next week, thanking you for rising from the dead and raising us with you. Let this be real to us all this week. And out of an overflow of that love, let us just share the good news everywhere we go. We'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name.